Good morning. Our scripture reader this morning is from Nahum chapter 3, and I believe in its entirety. Woe to the bloody city, it is full of lies and robbery. The prey departeth not. The noise of the whip and the noise of the rattle of the wheels and the prancing horses and of the jumping chariots. The horsemen lifted up both the bright sword and the glittering spear, and there is a a multitude of slain and a great number of carcasses, and there is no end to their corpses. They stumble upon their corpses. Because of the multitude of whoredoms of the well-favored harlot, the mistress of witchcrafts, that selleth nations through her whoredoms and families throughout her witchcrafts, through her witchcrafts. Behold, I am against thee, saith the Lord of hosts, and I will discover thy skirts upon thy face, and I will show the nations thy nakedness and the kingdoms thy shame, and I will cast abominable filth upon thee, and make thee vile, and will set thee as a gazing stock. And it shall come to pass, and it shall come to pass that all that look upon thee shall flee from thee and say, Nineveh is laid to waste. Who will bemoan her? Whence shall I seek comforters for thee? Art thou better than pop, populous? No. That was a situate, uh, that was a situate among the rivers, that was situated among the rivers that hath waters round about it, whose rampart was the sea, her wall was from the sea. Ethiopia and Egypt were her strength, and it was infinite. Put and Lumbium were her, thy helpers. Yet was she carried away, she went into captivity. Her young children also were dashed to pieces at the top of all the streets. And they cast lots for her honorable men and all her great men were bound in chains. Thou also shalt be drunken, thou shalt be hid. Thou shalt also seek strength because of the enemy. All thy strongholds shall be like the fig trees of the first ripe figs. If they be shaken, they shall even fall into the mouth of the eater. Behold, thy people in the midst of thee are women. The gates of thy land shall be set wide open unto thine enemies. The fire shall devour thy bars. Draw the water from the siege, for thy strongholds go into the clay and tread the mortar. Make strong thy brick kiln. There shall be be the fire devour thee. The sword cut thee off, and it shall eat thee up like canker worm. Make thy make thyself many. Make thyself many as the locust. Thou hast populated thy merchants above the stars of heaven. The cankerworm spoileth and fleeth away. Thy crowned are as the locust, and thy captains are as great grasshoppers, which camp in the hedges of the cold day. But when the sun arises, they flee away, and their place is not known where they are. Thy shepherds slumber. O king of Assyria, thy nobles shall dwell in the dust. Thy people is scattered upon the mountains, and no man gathereth them. There is no healing of thy bruise, thy wound is grievous. All that hear the brute, 
the brunt of thee shall clap the hands over thee, for upon whom hath not thy wickedness passed continually? Well, Terry, I think your face there says it all. <laughs> I gave Terry a difficult one this morning. Yes, yeah. Well, hopefully, I can uh, help us all this morning see uh, just what that means. Uh, this is why. Uh, part of why I like to spend time in the prophets because uh, it's a fun challenge <laughs> to try and figure out uh, just what all of that means. Uh, I'd like to start us this morning uh, by sharing one of my favorite C.S. Lewis quotes. Uh, if you know me, then you know that I like C.S. Lewis, the author of the Chronicles of Narnia. Uh, one of his uh, most famous, well, not most famous, one of my favorite quotes of his uh, is where uh, he says, There is something which unites magic and technology while separating both from the wisdom of earlier ages. He goes on to say, uh, For the wise men of old, the cardinal problem had been how to conform the soul to reality. And the solution had been knowledge, self-discipline, and virtue. For both magic and technology, the problem is how to subdue reality to the wishes of men. Now, uh, it's a little abstract, and that was written a number of years ago, so let me uh, help illustrate that for you with an analogy. Uh, let's say that I give to you four items. So I give you a baseball, a basketball, a baseball bat, and a basketball net. Now, I give you two boxes, and I tell you to organize those four items by putting two items into each box. So what do you do? Which items do you put in which box? This can be our audience participation part of today. Feel free to shout it out. Yes. Yes. Yep. That's good. <laughs> and that is an answer uh, to the question. Uh, to do that uh, is to organize them by function. Right, so you put the baseball stuff in one box, you put the basketball stuff in another box. Um, but there's another way to organize them. Right, you could organize them by structure. Right, so you have a, a baseball and a basketball, which are both uh, spheres. Right, so you could put them in one box, and you could put the baseball bat and the basketball net, which are not spheres, in the other box. So, uh, how you answer that question will say a lot about how your brain works. If you care more about sports, then you will organize them by sport. If you don't really care about sports, then you might organize them by their shape. Now, uh, let's do this a different way. Uh, let's say that I give you four other items. Those items which are religion, science, magic, and technology. Now, how would you organize those things? I won't make you answer this one. I'll just give you the answer. Um, most people would put science and technology in one group, and they would put religion and magic in another group. Now, uh, there's a point to that, right? Science and technology are both limited uh, to what is verifiable by the scientific method, and religion and science uh, are not. Now, there's a deeper classification. There's another way to classify those things. And this is what C.S. Lewis is pointing to in his quote. Science and religion both aim at conforming the mind to objective truth, 
objective reality. Magic and technology, on the other hand, both try to conform objective reality to the human will. Hopefully that makes sense. Now let me pray for us this morning, and we'll talk more about what this idea means. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the book of Nahum this morning. We thank you for what is a weird passage of scripture. Uh, And Father, we pray that you would uh, speak to us through it, that we may understand it, learn from it, uh, and glean from it, God, what you want us to do in our lives. We pray, God, that you would give us your wisdom and your guidance in this time, uh, that you would speak through me. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So if you weren't with us last week, uh, I'll just do a quick recap for us. We looked at uh, the second book of Nahum, Nahum chapter 2. And in that book, we saw uh, how though Assyria had great riches and great military strength, God would humble them and he would prove to them that their grandeur, their riches and their military strength was really just an illusion. Now today, uh, we're moving on to chapter 3 of the book of Nahum, which is the last chapter of the book, so it's a pretty short book. Uh, If you have a Bible, or uh, there should be a Bible in the pew in front of you, I'd invite you to turn there with us this morning. Uh, Nahum chapter 3 is on page 661 of the church Bibles. And I've split uh, Nahum chapter 3 up into three sections for us this morning. Uh, First, we'll talk about Nineveh. The why behind the woe in verses 1 through 7. Then we'll talk about Nineveh, no different than other cities in verses 8 through 13. And then finally, we'll talk about Nineveh, the collapse to come in verses 14 through 19. If you have a bulletin, you can see uh, those on your outline. Uh, So in this first section, verses 1 through 7, this is uh, really the last chapter in the book of Nahum. Uh, And so it begins to expand upon what we looked at in chapter 2. If chapter 2 described what the fall of Nineveh would look like, then chapter 3 goes on to describe that fall in more and more detail. Nineveh being the capital city of the nation Assyria, the most powerful nation in the world at this time. Now Nahum, the prophet, begins this final chapter uh, with this quote, Woe to the city of blood. It's a good way to start a closing chapter, I guess. Now, woe is a strange word to us because we don't use the word woe very much. It's different from our word woe, which is spelled W-H-O-A. The word woe that Nahum uses here uh, is more akin to saying ah or alas or I see what is happening, or I understand. Now, this form of woe that Nahum uses here is a lament. There's a sense of dissatisfaction here that he has that is coming across with this word. Really has the idea that it's a shame that it has come to this, that this is what must happen to Nineveh. Nahum doesn't delight in having to say the things that he does here in chapter 3. Nahum is a mouthpiece for God. He's a prophet. God is speaking through him, which is uh, an incredible 
burden to bear to have to say these things. Nahum has seen the destruction of Nineveh that is to come. He knows what is going to happen, uh, and it is weighing heavily on his soul. He feels bad for the people who will die. He feels sorrow over the destruction that will take place. He wishes there had been another alternative. And in this way, he reflects the heart of God through what he is saying. This is not God's desired outcome. God has tried to save Nineveh. He does not want this to happen, but it is necessary. And so it is. Woe to Nineveh if only things had been different for you. Now we see here much of the same description of Nineveh that we saw in the last chapter. Nineveh is the city of blood. Murder and bloodshed are what the city is built upon. Lies, plunder, victims, all left in the wake, the sound and the sights of battle. But here we see the aftermath of what will happen in Nineveh's fall. In verse 3, piles of dead, bodies without number, people stumbling over corpses is a grim picture. Why? Why all the bloodshed? Why the destruction? Why does this have to happen? Well, Nahum answers in verse 4, and he answers with prostitution and sorcery. Those are the two things that he points to as to why all of this is happening. Now, I don't think Nineveh's problems were those two things in and of themselves. They are a product of Nineveh's true problem. Nineveh's problems with prostitution, with sorcery, were what lied behind them. See, prostitution offers temporary satisfaction, absent of any relationship or commitment. Sorcery, which I opened talking about, magic, offers temporary power or the fulfillment of desires in an instant. And both of those, both prostitution and sorcery, those happen at a cost. Not just a financial cost, though usually there's a financial cost associated with them, but at the cost also of giving a piece of yourself to someone else. Why does God hate sorcery so much? Why do we see in the Bible that God hates witchcraft? Well, using C.S. Lewis's definition of magic from the intro, magic and technology both try to subdue reality to the wishes of men. You see, when we look at passages like this, we find it hard to connect them to today. I get it. God hates magic. How does that apply to me? Who actually practices magic today? Well, <laughs> the answer to that is lots of people. It's becoming more popular. Another form of magic, as C.S. Lewis says, how does this apply to me, is technology. If I asked you, how does your phone work? How does your computer work? <laughs> Could you answer that question? Well, I go in and I you know, press these buttons and this happens, right? Well, yes, that's how it works, but what is going on behind the scenes, right? How is it actually functioning inside the box? Do you actually understand what is happening inside of that box? Do you understand how the algorithms work? No? Well, then it is magic, <laughs> right? Uh, 
as some people would say, right? We even use the word magic to describe what technology can do for us today, right? right? It's, it's magic that this is even possible. Do you use your phone to subdue reality to your wishes? Do you use your computer to subdue reality to your wishes? Do you use it to only see the world how you want to see it? Do you use it to fulfill desires that you know you should not fulfill? And if the answer to those questions is, well, yes, well, then it really is magic. And it is dangerous. We must be aware of that. Because for you to take part in that, you must give a piece of yourself to another. Well, Tanner, how does that work with technology? Well, whether it's the companies who make the technology, whether it's the companies that make the apps that are part of the technology, or whether it's that real person on a screen that you are communicating with, talking with, looking at, or the person on the other side of it. There is a portion of technology where we give a piece of ourselves to someone else. Now, the problem with prostitution and with sorcery, with magic and technology, is the problem of all sin. The problem of trying to find satisfaction in something other than God. The problem of trying to order reality in the way that we want to order it, the way that we want reality to be, instead of the way that it actually is. See, that's the problem behind sin. It's not just the act in and of itself, but the heart behind it. So yes, Nineveh had given herself to prostitution and to sorcery. But what's worse is that Nineveh, it wasn't just enough for Nineveh to have that for themselves, but they had to go and conquer other nations and draw others into it to be a part of it. So here God says again, as he had said in chapter 2, I am against you. And God is against them, not only because he is against these things, but because Nineveh has also positioned themselves against him. God not only has a problem with what they have done, he has a problem with what they have replaced him with. And so here is what God will do against Nineveh. Another grim picture. He will lift their skirts over their face. He will show the nations her nakedness and her shame. He will pelt Nineveh with filth. I don't know what that one means, (laughs) but that doesn't sound good. He will treat her with contempt. He will make Nineveh a spectacle. Make no mistake about it. God is making an example out of Nineveh here. God wants the other nations to see what happens when you turn to these things instead of turning to him. He wants other nations to see what happens when you oppress others and when you bring others into your sinful nature, when your reputation is for death and destruction. This warning to Nineveh is a warning to all nations. God is against these things. And going against what God has commanded will result in destruction. Now the answer to Nahum's final questions in this first section here is that no one will come to comfort Nineveh in her fall. No one will mourn for Nineveh. No one will miss Nineveh. In fact, people will be glad that Nineveh has been wiped out because Nineveh has wiped out so many other people. 
Now, starting in verse 8 for our next section, Nahum, he has some other questions for Nineveh in this section. And his question is really about how Nineveh sees itself. He asks the question, are you better than Thebes? Now, we're not really sure what Thebes is. Now, Thebes uh, was the second most important city in Egypt around this time, situated on the Nile, which served as its defense against other nations, great strength and allies as a part of being a part of the nation of Egypt. Now, Assyria had conquered Thebes as part of its rise to power. It was such a great victory that the Assyrian king, Ashurbanipal, wrote about the conquest of Thebes. And I'll quote from him for you what that looked like. He says, This city, the whole of it, I conquered it with the help of Asher and Ishtar, silver, gold, precious stones, all the wealth of the palace, rich cloth, Precious linen, great horses, supervising men and women, two obelisks of splendid electrum, weighing 2,500 talents. The doors of temples I tore from their bases and carried them off to Assyria. With this weighty booty I left Thebes. Against Egypt and Cush I have lifted my spear and shown my power. With full hands I have returned to Nineveh in good health. So that's the king of Assyria speaking. Now, what do you notice a lot of in that quote? Right? There's a lot of me. I did this. I conquered Thebes. I carried their gold and their precious stones and all their wealth away back to Nineveh. Now, this quotation shows not just how they felt about their great victory, but they boasted about it. They were pleased. This is really a question of Nineveh's pride. Nineveh thinks that she is the greatest city in the world. But great cities have fallen in the past. What makes Nineveh any different? Just as Assyria conquered, destroyed, and plundered the city of Thebes, so Nineveh would be conquered, destroyed, and plundered. In the end, Nineveh is not better than Thebes. Nineveh is not the first city on the face of the earth to face the judgment of God, and it will not be the last. Other cities that have fallen were even greater than Nineveh was. What makes Nineveh think that she is better than these other cities? What makes Nineveh think that she is better than God himself? Other nations have been here before, and none have stood the test of time as they defied God. Another one of my favorite C.S. Lewis quotes was a term that he quoted uh, or coined called chronological snobbery. (laughs) Now, that's kind of a funny word, but what it means is it's the idea that something of the present is superior than something of the past just because it is newer, right, or exists in the present. Now, Assyria is guilty of chronological snobbery. Because they think that because they are on the top now, in the present, they are better than any who has come before them. Remind us of Proverbs 16, verse 18, which says, Pride goes before destruction, a haughty spirit before a fall. Now there will always be competition between cities, right? It's not just Nineveh versus Thebes, right? It might be New York versus L.A., Rome versus Paris, Right. Constantinople versus Istanbul. Now that's kind of a joke. <laughs> um, in the end, most cities end up 
being the same. If any city thinks that they are immune to downfall and disaster, then they're naive. Now Nahum, he not only prophesies the fall of Nineveh in comparison to Thebes, he also prophesies that it will fall easily. And his analogy is like a fig tree with ripe fruit. One shake and all the fruit falls to the ground. Now in the last section, starting in verse 14, God begins to speak, and his advice to them is for them to prepare themselves. Draw water for the siege, strengthen your defenses, repair the walls, all of which it's not really going to matter in the end. Nineveh's destruction is is imminent, and it will happen. There's a they being used here in this last section. We're not told who that they is, But we know from history that Babylon is the the they. Babylon is the one who will rise up and devour Nineveh like a swarm of locusts. Now the analogy flips, though. Now Nineveh are like the locusts. The merchants, the guards, the officials, they're all like locusts, numerous, but fleeting. Here today, gone tomorrow, off to who knows where leaving only destruction in their wake. See, that will be the legacy that Nineveh has. In verse 18, God mentions the king of Assyria. That's the first mention of the king here in Nahum in the last chapter. Last week, we talked about how God is sovereign over kings, presidents, and prime ministers. God knows who the king of Assyria is. In fact, he knows him better than anyone, which is really a scary thought for the king. It's likely that the king here is Ashurbanipal, who I quoted earlier. Now, God not only knows him, but God knows his heart. He has seen all that the king has done. See, this is a stark warning for all world leaders. God addresses the king of Assyria directly here, right? I see what you do. God sees all that you do. Not just all that you do. He knows the intentions of your heart. See, God's message to the king of Assyria is not a good one. Your shepherds and your nobles are sleeping, which most likely means that they are dead. Assyria now lacks leadership. Her people are scattered. No one is there to gather them. This is how this once great nation will come to an end. In verse 19, the last verse, we have one last warning from God for them. He says, there will be no healing. Their wound will be fatal. All who hear about their nation's downfall will celebrate it. There will be rejoicing when the news about the fall of Nineveh begins to travel. Because Assyria has been so cruel to everyone, people will be glad that she has been wiped out. Now, I like to compare God's judgment here to a wildfire, like a natural wildfire. Sometimes a wildfire in an ecosystem is a good thing. It kills the things that are bad and the things that are dying. It provides the ability for new things to grow. It is a shame that all of the plant and animal life that dies in a wildfire has to die. But because it dies, new life can emerge. The ecosystem actually becomes healthier in the long run. So, so it is with God's judgment, right? It is a shame that God has to bring Nineveh and Assyria to an end. 
It is a shame that people have to suffer and to die because of it. But a world without Assyria is a better world. God is moving his plan for the world forward. Assyria's time has come to an end. But before we get carried away with applying that analogy to Assyria, I think we have to remember Nahum's posture of woe from verse 1. Nahum, who God is speaking through, he's not just celebrating their downfall. Right, it's easy to look at passages like this and to jump on board against Assyria with the judgment and to say, well, yeah, they deserved it. It's easy to look at our world today and to compare some nations to Assyria and to root for God's judgment against them. Let's remember what we talked about last week. Judgment is in the hands of the Lord. It's easy to root for the downfall of someone else. But doing so makes us blind to our own sin in our lives. So let's take that analogy of a wildfire and apply it to ourselves. If there was a wildfire in your own life, what dead or dying things would it remove from you? What sin is there in you that needs to die? so that better things can grow in its place. See, when we talk about passages of judgment, it's easy to look at them as, well, this is for these people over there. It's not for me. But we need to be just as cautious of these things. And so we come to the end of the book of Nahum, a short book, only three chapters. But we don't usually like to spend time here in books like this because we saw from Terry's reaction at the beginning (laughs) that this is kind of weird, right? We recoil at some of the language that's used. We're like, well, this is archaic and, you know, we're modern people and we're civilized and this kind of thing is so far behind us. Or is it? (laughs) As much as we try and pretend that it is, there are still very terrible things that happen in our world. Human beings are still very capable of terrible things. Take one look at our world today, right? Still lots of terrible things that happen. As much as we try to ignore them or we try to hide from them, they're still there. Now we have to remember, and I'll read for us again that really strange passage, that our faith in Jesus Christ is based upon something terrible that happened to someone, right? So when we read passages like Nahum chapter 3, verses 5 through 7, where God says, I am against you, declares the Lord Almighty. I will lift your skirts over your face. I will show the nations your nakedness and the kingdoms your shame. I will pelt you with filth. I will treat you with contempt and make you a spectacle. All who see you will flee from you and say, Nineveh is in ruins. Who will mourn for her? Where can I find anyone to comfort you? We have to think about that and, you know, for a second. And what do I think happened on the cross? Right? We're Christians. We're followers of Jesus Christ. We remember what Jesus did for us, right? Jesus was practically naked on the cross. Jesus was up on a hill so that people could see him there, his shame on full display for all to see. 
Jesus, he wasn't pelted with filth, but he was pelted with insults, given sour wine to drink. He was treated with contempt, hated, despised, and mocked. The mocking sign, king of the Jews, put above his head. All who knew Jesus fled from him. There was no one there to comfort him. God's judgment that we see present here in the book of Nahum was poured out onto his very own son. In what was death on a cross, a terrible, gruesome, humiliating way to die. Why? Why did Jesus have to die in that way? So that you and I could be free from God's judgment. So that the fall of Nahum wouldn't have to be the fall of us in our lives. If we have placed our faith in Jesus, we have accepted the sacrifice that he made for us on the cross, we have surrendered our lives to him, and we're free. We don't have to be afraid of passages like this anymore. But it also means that we need to tell other people about it. We don't have to be afraid of reading passages like Nahum chapter 3 and all their weird language anymore. <laughs> because we can see Jesus here, right? Hopefully you see him this morning. See, books like Nahum point us to God's judgment. It's true. We don't like to think about God's judgment. But whenever we think about God's judgment, we also have to think about how God has set us free from judgment on the cross. That freedom from judgment enables us to live in the way that Jesus wants us to live and have true freedom in our lives.